Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thanks for joining me for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I am Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Linda Zegzebski. Linda is George Lynn Cross Research Professor and Knight Fisher College Chair of the Philosophy of Religion and Ethics at the University of Oklahoma. Her new book, which is based on her 2015 Gifford Lectures, is titled Exemplarist Moral Theory. It's published by Oxford University Press. Now, in this fantastic book, Linda develops a novel kind of moral theory. It's a theory according to which the phenomenon of admiring exemplars is fundamental to the theory. This means in part that the moral theory that Linda recommends involves a good deal of empirical study, both of the lives of exemplars and the psychology of admiration. And it's also philosophically, meta-ethically, very sophisticated and detailed. So as usual with philosophy, there's a lot to talk about. But let's begin where we usually do, that is with greeting our guest. Hello, Linda. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you today? Just fine. Well, thank you so much for writing the book, and thank you for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Before we start talking about exemplars and admiration and the rest, Linda, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Thanks. Well, um, my work in philosophy actually started with philosophy of language in grad school in the 70s at UCLA, and I wrote a dissertation on direct reference on the semantics of natural kind terms which is ironic because I've come back to that in this book with a proposal to use direct reference in the semantics of moral terms. But for decades, I did completely different things. So um, as some people know, I began in uh, philosophy of religion, beginning with a book on freedom and foreknowledge. And then I was dragged into epistemology through work in philosophy of religion because in those days, yeah, in those days, meaning the 80s and early 90s, philosophy of religion was dominated by epistemology. And I had to sit through paper after paper on religious epistemology at conferences, and I found most of it very boring. So I wrote Virtues of the Mind because I thought that there had to be a better way to approach epistemological issues. And what I did is to propose a virtue theory that would encompass intellectual virtues in the same theory as moral virtues, and then showed how I thought that the idea of intellectual virtue can advance discussions in epistemology. But that meant I was also working in ethics, particularly virtue ethics. And I then got the idea of creating a type of moral theory based on direct reference to particular persons, not their traits of character, but the persons themselves. So um, 
in this type of theory, I'm using the term direct reference in the sense that became famous in the work of Kripke and Putnam, particularly in the way they um, uh, define natural kind terms like water, gold, and tiger. So briefly, the term water is defined as stuff like that, tiger is defined as creatures like that, and so on, where in the simplest case, the word that is just is used to point to real objects. And what was really fascinating about this theory is that it revolutionized semantics because it meant that we can succeed in thinking about and talking about objects in the, in the natural world without needing a descriptive meaning in our heads. And that was the insight that I was using when I wrote um, the Christian version of this theory in a book called Divine Motivation Theory. Now, that that book was published back in 2004. And the basic idea of that book was that God is the supreme exemplar to whom we refer directly rather than through descriptions. And human exemplars are imitations of the divine. So... Um, the, the idea of using exemplars is really um, a way of looking at the moral life in which morality attracts rather than compels. And I've always liked that way of looking at morality. I guess you could say it's a, a more platonic way of looking at morality rather than a Kantian way. But the, the Divine Motivation Theory book, was focused on puzzles in philosophical theology more than ethical theory. But uh, I discovered that it got attention from some psychologists and education theorists who liked the idea of exemplars as the basis for a moral theory. And then that brought me into conversation with interdisciplinary groups who were doing research on exemplars. And I became a consultant for one of those groups. And I was encouraged to work on a general moral moral theory based on exemplars. So that um, was what I decided to do. But meanwhile, I was still working in epistemology, and I wrote a book on epistemic authority, which came out in 2012. So I started working on the exemplarist moral theory book for my Gifford lectures, um, which then turned into this book. And so um, that's sort of... The, the, the long history of how the book came to be. Well, that's wonderful. And it's always interesting to hear um, uh, the storied pasts of new books. <laughs> um, so let's, um, let's, let's dive in then. And so, you know, um, I think you and I will agree that um, longstanding debates in philosophy uh, in, 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 in almost any area, I think, um, uh, sometimes or often maybe boil down to um, disputes about where to begin. Um, okay. And so um, it, this is clearly true in epistemology, by the way, it seems to me, maybe especially true in epistemology, that the debates are about you know, what's the concept that you begin with or what's the, the phenomenon you begin with. So in your book, you you, you propose, um, you know, uh, among the a, a lot of novel thoughts and ideas, you propose a novel conception of where moral theory begins, which is um, – uh, with exemplars and the experience of admiration. But um, I, I very much appreciated uh, at the very beginning of the book um, that you, you took some time to uh, to talk through and, and to orient the reader towards your conception of what the task of moral theory is or how moral theory works. Mm-hmm. So why don't we begin uh, there? Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you, you call your theory of moral theory? 
Oh, yeah, my theory of theory. (laughs) I think of a theory um, as like a map. Right. Um, So it's you can compare it to a geographical map, if you wish. So what a map does is to simplify the domain that the map is mapping in order to make it easier for human beings to grasp it. And uh, in simplifying, many things are left out. Uh, Sometimes it distorts what's left in. So, for example, on a geographical map, sometimes the lines depicting roads are straighter than the line than the roads really are. You know, that would just be a simple example. Or um, if you think of of a two dimensional map of the world, think of how it distorts the size, the relative size and shape of countries or continents near the poles. You know, that would be an example So maps simplify and they distort to some extent, but they do that because it actually aids human understanding to grasp a very large and complicated domain through the medium of a simple structure. And when you think about morality, it's an enormous domain that affects pretty much all aspects of our lives. And um, it it, it's 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 just too hard for us to get our minds around it without something that helps us structure it. So it so a map is meant to be or a, a theory is like a map that simplifies it for us. And I think of the map as something where you can you can put more or less detail in it depending upon what your purpose is. So um we 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 think you know when we look at a geographical map a lot of a lot is missing from the map but we we think that if we wanted to we would know where to put the buildings on the map or you know if it's a street map say um and so we want to be able to have something that helps us grasp a large domain with a lot of it missing in order to in, in order to get our minds around it but we also want to know where to put the details to put the pieces of the domain onto the map when it's appropriate. So that means that I think that since a theory is a map that aids us, aids our understanding, there's going to really be more than one way to do it. So I think there's more than one good map, more than one good theory. But um, I also think that if the map is used to get somewhere, um, you know, if you're going, you could you could have more than one map of the same city. But if you're going to use the map to get somewhere, it better get you to the same place to the place you want to get to. So multiple maps should get you should get the people who are using them to the same place. So I think that for the most part, moral theories do that. Moral theories basically help us navigate the moral life as well as to understand it. And if, even though there can be more than one good moral theory, if we're going to use the theory as a way to get somewhere, that is to know what to do, the maps, the moral theories should tell us the same thing. They should get us to the same place. If they don't, then we know one of them is defective. At least one of them is defective. Um, and uh, so that's my general idea of what a map, a moral theory should do. Um, I also have one other feature of my idea, uh, my theory of theory, that I think is unusual, and that is that the theory should have a place for all of the major 
features of our moral practices. Um, so we should know where to put moral emotions in the theory. We should know where to put narratives in the theory. We should know where to put other theories in the theory. So in other words, the production, the invention of moral theories is one of the pieces of our moral practices that a moral theory should explain. So I think a good moral theory should explain how it is that other theories we know where the other theories fit on the map. Well, that let me pick up on that because that was um, uh, a, a refreshing uh, feature mm-hmm. of your account. Um, uh, it's odd, perhaps, that uh, at least at least from my perspective, uh, it seems odd that um, moral philosophy is is one of the more combative. <laughs> areas of philosophy and um so it's it's not uncommon you know to read even very contemporary work in moral philosophy where um you know a person is arguing against you know the, the the competing conception of you know the meanings of moral terms or the 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 semantics of moral statements or you know truth and falsity in moral matters and you emerge often with the idea that, wow, this person can't understand how, you know, this anti-utilitarian can't understand why there are any utilitarians in the world. Right, right. Or this guy, you know, this utilitarian thinks there shouldn't be any Kantians. There's nothing. Kantians aren't tracking anything. That always seemed to me like a, uh, like an unfortunate feature of the, the way the discourse sort of pans out. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, you could, you could compare, you know, just to go back to my map analogy, there are different maps of the same, the same region. Some maps concentrate on roads and political borders, and others depict um, con- the contour elevations and elevation contours, mountains and that sort of thing. Um, they depict different things, uh, but yet they both... Um, represent reasonably accurately, you know, in different degrees, the same, the same thing, but they pick out different features. Um, I do think, as I mentioned a minute ago, that it isn't that all moral theories are equal. Right. I think some do a better job than others of depicting the features of our moral practices that we really want to grasp. Some are more comprehensive than others. Um, I actually think it's an advantage when it's simpler. Some are simpler than others. Right. And but but when you look at the major moral theories, they for the most part, they tell us to do the same things. So that's like maps that are, you know, two good maps that tell you, you know, if you use them, you'll get to the same location. So. um uh, but of course, if they tell you, if they don't tell you, if they don't get you to the same place, then that's a defect of one of them. Right, right, right. Great. So th- that's that's all very helpful. Um, why don't we uh, dive into the to the exemplarist theory then? Um, uh, so may- maybe the, the 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 place to start is with the most general question, and um, uh, and I'll ask you in in responding to it to to, to pick up on some of the things you were saying. Uh, in uh, when you were telling us about the the, the genesis of the book, um, sure. so uh, why don't we just say like so? Tell us a little bit. What's an exemplar? How does admiration work? And sure, what is the ba- what is the direct reference background to all to, to, right. to, to, to Thanks. the view? Thanks. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, briefly, what I mean by an exemplar is a person who's supremely admirable. And I propose that we pick out exemplars through the emotion of admiration. Now, the, of the emotion of admiration can change upon reflection. It's shaped through experience and through traditions that pass on narratives of admirable persons. But um, we identify exemplars not through the possession of descriptive properties known in advance, but directly as persons like that. And we point to people we admire, you know, people like Gandhi or Confucius or St. Teresa of Calcutta or Holocaust rescuers, or it could be your own grandmother. And then I I propose that we discover what makes an exemplar an exemplar through observation, including, and, and when I say observation, that would include not only personal observation, but narratives that others tell us and controlled empirical studies. So that would be parallel to discovering what makes water water by empirical observation. So we find out by observation that water is H2O. And I propose that we find out um, by observation that an exemplar has a certain kind of motivational structure, which we typically describe using virtue terms. So the word water does not mean H2O. We discover that it's H2O. And And the word exemplar does not mean person who is kind, generous, just, etc. We discover the traits of exemplars through observation. And I think that the set of exemplars has more than one function. Um, I think it forms the basis for the, a theoretical map that serves the function that I described a minute ago. It's a, a you know a philosophical purpose in which um, I can I define terms like virtue, good motive, good life, right act, and other moral terms by the properties of exemplars. And this theoretical map is meant to simplify the moral domain by picking out key moral concepts and linking them together to the properties of exemplars. So that's one, the theoretical purpose is one purpose that's served by picking out exemplars. But there's also a practical purpose because admiration is motivating and in the right conditions, it leads to emulation. So uh, exemplarism is intended to be a theory that makes us want to be better persons in addition to understanding the moral domain. And I think that that means it can also be used in moral education. And I think there's actually another advantage. Um, Many people in recent years have said that moral philosophy ought to be responsive to empirical work. And this theory actually incorporates empirical studies as well as narratives into the body of the theory itself. So my idea is to produce a a structure for mapping the moral domain into which we can place narratives about exemplars and the results of empirical work. So that's how it's supposed to go. Well, wonderful. So there's there's a lot in there. So let let's let me let me ask you to unpack um, a couple of things. But let me sure. let me begin then. Uh, can, can and maybe this is um, one of the places where your sort of approach to moral theory um, 
uh, it does look like it's 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 got a bone to pick with. Uh, it, it might not be it might not be so ecumenical as 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 maybe one would like because the the reliance on the direct reference semantics um, uh, does seem that it it it, it is running uh, against the current of. Um, a lot of work in metaethics, and think about G.E. Moore, for example. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, even soft versions of 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 of, of the Moore view are, are are still very prevalent. Which say, um, well, no, moral theory has to begin with definitions, or moral theory has to begin with necessary and sufficient conditions for something's having the property of being good or right. being right. right. Mm-hmm. So, could you just draw that contrast uh, a a little sure. bit more? Yeah. Yeah. So that that's good. That's a very good question, because I definitely want to reject the idea that moral theory begins with definitions, begins with necessary and sufficient conditions for being a virtue or a right act or whatever it might be, and instead should begin by direct reference to exemplars. Now, that being said, um, remember, I was proposing a theory of theory in which this is not the only way to do a moral theory, but I like this way of doing moral theory. For one thing, I think it fits our, the way we actually use language better than other, other theories. And um, it also, well, it has other advantages we can talk about later, but if you, I, when I say that um, um, we should begin by direct reference rather than by descriptions, I really mean that to be taken seriously, and the 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 reason it's ecumenical, as you as you put it, is that I think that 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 in the theory itself we can explain how it is that other theories develop. I mean, I have a place for moral emotions in the theory, I have a place for moral philosophy in the theory. You know, moral philosophers get a function, you know, in this in this theory. And there's a place for empirical scientists in the theory. So it it it's it's in a sense a meta theory, I guess, because it's a theory that has a place for other theories. Right. Excellent. So uh, just a little bit more. I mean, uh, I, I suspect many of our listeners will be familiar with uh, the Putnam Kripke uh, stuff. Um, but sure. can, can you just spell that out just a little bit more to people who, you know, might not have might not remember their grad school philosophy of language class? <laughs> Right, of course. Um, okay, so um, there's a number of levels at which I use the Putnam-Kripke theory, but the most basic one is just the direct reference. Right. That um, what I mean by a good person or, or admirable person is a person like that. And then we point to a set of exemplars of people we admire, and that means we admire upon reflection. I mean, admiration changes with reflection, and it changes as um, uh, you know over time as traditions develop, and and uh, the you know the course of history tends to change the set of exemplars that we pick out. So, um, an exemplar. Uh, we, we pick out an exemplar directly through the emotion of admiration. Now, of course, there's nothing in the Putnam-Kripke theory about admiration. I mean, you just point to water. I mean, there's no, nothing <laughs> serves. Yeah, you, you don't need a you don't need an emotion or anything like that in the Putnam-Kripke theory. Um, but then it's very important. It's really critical in their theory that um, 
um, meaning is external to the mind, or at least partly external to the mind, because the meaning of water is stuff like that. And um, I also want to say that the meaning of good person is persons like that. And then you find out what that is by observation. So the Putnam-Kripke theory was what one of the things that was really novel and interesting about it was that it smoothly connected semantics with science. So the semantics sort of tells you where to look, and then the semantics does, or then the science does the looking. And my theory is similar to that in that you know we the the our 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 direct reference to exemplars through emotion tells us where to look and then we look but there's more than one way to look i mean you can talk to them if you know them there's narratives that are passed down or passed spread throughout a culture that describe them and more recently there have been empirical studies of exemplars so all of these ways of looking at exemplars elucidate what it is to be an exemplar, what it is to be an admirable person, and roughly the same way that empirical science um, uh, permits us to tell us what it is to be water, what it is to be gold, what it is to be a tiger, and so on. Good. So let me – excellent. Let me – ask. Uh, so there is a feature of the direct reference views uh, that's m- more front-loaded or, 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 or more f- central to the Putnam version, as I'm remembering, but still present in the Kripke. What Putnam calls the sort of division of semantic labor. Oh, yes. And, you know, it's got a version of this in Kripke with the baptism stuff, right, yeah, which yeah. does look like a communal act, too. So could you bring bring the, the, the relevance of the communal aspect in, in, good. into it? Good. Yeah. Excellent. That's a good – I'm glad you asked that. I have a whole chapter on that. Yes. It's a very good so, chapter, too. Um, Yes, so Putnam had this idea of the division of linguistic labor, and this is actually part of the way in which his semantics is externalist, meaning meaning is outside there, at least partly outside the mind. It's it's partly (laughs) it's partly in a community, in a linguistic community, and the idea here um, was that we all succeed and referring to the same thing when we use a term like, say, titanium, because we are all connected to titanium through a social network that includes experts who have the function of picking out titanium. Certain people in the community have to be able to find the stuff. I mean, they have to be able to say, this is it. And they also have the function of explaining what makes titanium titanium. The rest of us don't have to know that at all. We succeed in referring to titanium because we're connected to a network where some people in the network can find titanium. So we, we in a sense, are semantically successful because some of us are semantically successful in finding the right stuff. Um, but Putnam also thought that That doesn't, I mean, that might look like we all get to be semantically successful for free, you know, like we don't have to do anything. But he also had this idea of a stereotype where a competent user of a term has to be able to grasp what he calls a stereotype of the term. 
And what is in the stereotype, the stereotype is, is descriptive, but it doesn't give necessary and sufficient conditions for being a member of the kind. Um, the stereotype is sort of the minimum descriptions that competent users are suppo- of a term are supposed to grasp. So um, he sp- suggests very famously that the stereotype of elm tree doesn't differ from the stereotype of beech tree. I believe he thinks that. He says he can't tell them apart. You know, he can't tell an elm tree from a beech tree. But that's okay because the stereotype is thin enough that you don't have to be able to distinguish an elm tree from a beech tree in order to know in order to successfully use either term, elm tree or beech tree. Um, but you do have to know something. I mean, you have to understand it's a tree. I don't know what else you have to grasp, but you have to grasp something minimal. Um, something descriptively minimal um, to be able to competently use the terms elm tree and beech tree. Mm-hmm. And then he says something interesting about the term tiger. He says you don't competently grasp the term tiger if you don't know that tigers have stripes. Now, when you think about that, that seems to be a, a sort of a, I don't know, I guess you could say a cultural decision, you know, right. that you don't you just don't know what a tiger is if you don't know they have stripes. And that's well, partly because the way tiger, the term tiger is used in our society is people people are expected to have seen pictures of tigers or they've seen tigers in zoos or something. And you're supposed to know that tigers have stripes or you just didn't learn the term properly. So that's the division of linguistic labor, more or less, that there's a function for experts And then ordinary speakers are supposed to grasp a stereotype. How thick or thin the stereotype is depends upon, well, just, you know, whatever this, you know, the culture decides. Um, And I have something like that in my theory, um, what I call a division of moral linguistic labor, where um, to... Uh, I think that the division of, of moral linguistic labor operates differently for um, evaluative terms and virtue terms like um, good and fair and generous and honest um, than it does for deontic terms like wrong and duty. And for the evaluative terms, I think that there is a stereotype we're supposed to grasp um, the stereotype is is spread through the community through through stories through narratives. So if 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 someone understands the word generous, they ought to be able to you know maybe tell a story about a generous person or they've heard a story of a generous person that it allows them to give some 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 general description of what generous people are like. Again, it's not necessary in sufficient conditions. It just shows that they're properly plugged into the network of users of the term generous. Um, so ordinary people should be able to grasp a stereotype. And but there aren't experts in quite the same sense as um, uh, Putnam thinks for scientific terms, for natural kind terms. I mean, we really don't have experts that who have the final decision, the final say-so on 
who's a generous person and who's a fair person and so on. Um, but I do think that we have a division of labor and we actually have several different functions of diff- for uh, different kinds of people in a moral linguistic community. So the storytellers I've already mentioned, being a storyteller is a linguistic, I think the storytellers actually perform a linguistic function in um conveying the stereotype of virtue terms. Then I think, again, more recently, empirical scientists have a function in um, um, studying um, how widespread um, a virtue, the possession of a virtue is, whether people are consistently virtuous from one situation to another, um, whether there's... um, um, people who have one virtue are more likely to have another, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Empirical scientists can, can, can serve that function. I think that uh, philosophers have a function in the network. That is, they actually have a function in, in the moral linguistic network. And the function of philosophers is partly to um, find or pick out uh, inconsistencies in the stereotype, clarifying the stereotype, And philosophers do something even more important in providing um, the moral reasoning to support the judgments of the exemplars that the people in the community recognize. So there's different functions for different groups of people in the moral linguistic network. And I think I actually think of these, you know, these this network as having um, explaining the semantics of the moral terms explains how it is that we are connected to the same thing when we talk, you know, use these moral terms. Excellent. Uh, So that clears up uh, a lot of the the architecture uh, Mm -hmm. of of the view. Um, Can we talk a little bit about, um, you know, some of the earlier uh, chapters where um, you examine um, exemplars uh, and you're interested particularly in cases of uh, uh, exemplars that are heroes and saints uh, and sages. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, th- th- that's a very, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to read a book in moral philosophy that um, has, you know, actual narrative content about people who um, I think are undeniably morally admirable. <laughs> mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about some of that work? Sure. Um, so let me start by saying that um there's an obvious way in which the set of exemplars differs from water and tigers and gold. The set of exemplars includes a number of different kinds of people whom we find admirable. Uh, I mean, I, I, I assume that one um, one bit of water is just like any other bit of water, you know, leaving out impurities. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all the same and the same for pieces of gold, but that's not the case for exemplars. And that just, you know, that makes it more complicated because we then have to investigate not just one exemplar, but many, many of them to really get an idea of what admir- the different varieties of admirability. So I propose that there's, three kinds of exemplars. I don't actually uh, mean that there are only three kinds. There could be others. But the three kinds of exemplars that I discuss in the book are, as you as you mentioned, heroes, saints, and sages. 
And each one probably is dominated by a particular virtue. So heroes, I would say they're dominated by the virtue of courage. They're supremely courageous. Saints, maybe that's a little harder because it, I mean, what I propose is it's something like love or, you know, charity. But um, the saints may have many other virtues as well. But but if there is a dominant one, it might be compassion or love. And then sages, of course, would be dominated by the virtue of wisdom. Now, um, you could argue that both saints and sages have virtually all of the virtues, or anyway, anyway, most of them, as well as their dominant virtue. It's different in the case of heroes. Heroes, um, sometimes we find heroes interesting because they have obvious defects. Uh, Not all of them, of course, but many of them have obvious defects. Uh, So the heroes are actually a little different than the saints and the sages. But I think we can examine them all using the same methodology. So What I suggest is that if we're following my proposal to pick them out by the emotion of admiration and then use narratives and empirical studies to elucidate what it is we admire about them, um, then, you know, we're going to need stories and we're going to need to refer to some empirical studies right in the, you know, in the theory itself. So I do that a bit with. Uh, examples of exemplars in each of the three categories. So for heroes, my example is Leopold Socha, Mm -hmm. who is a Holocaust rescuer in Poland, and he hid Jews in the sewers of Lvov for um, 14 months and managed to save um, something like more than a dozen. I can't remember exactly how many he was able to save. And he did this at great personal risk. Um, and the, you know, there's, um, a a movie about them called in darkness. There's a couple of biographies about him that I've read. Uh, it's a, it's a fascinating, a a really fascinating story. And he's got the, he, one of the features of that story is, as you were saying, you know, that heroes can be internally morally conflicted or in, in some ways morally ambiguous. He himself, um, wasn't uh, di- didn't have a didn't didn't have all of the virtues it seems no he didn't he started actually this is part of what makes this so interesting yeah, yeah. he he was a thief he was a petty thief and he um when he began to um uh hide jews in the sewers he was a sewer inspector so that's how he was able to to pull this off um but when he began to hide the jews in the sewer he did it for money right um, they offered him money to do it, but when their money ran out, he just kept right on doing it. Right. And he did it out of love. Um, and another thing that's interesting is that he started by having a, a probably just the, the, the kind of vague anti-Semitic feelings of the people in Lvov at the time. Um, but the, somehow the, those feelings uh, disappeared and uh, grew into a very strong personal bond with the people that he was hiding in the sewers. Right. Yeah. Um, and then um, 
what I do in that chapter about the different kinds of exemplars is to give I give a um, a narrative a brief narrative for each one. So for the hero, it's Leopold Soch, as I said. For the saint, it's Jean Vanier, the founder of the Larche communities that um, where people live with the mentally disabled and give them a, a rich home life. Um, and and this this movement has spread to every continent. And there's I don't remember I don't remember how many there are, but there's well over 150 of these communities in the world. And uh, so he's my example of the saint. He's a living saint, so I don't know if you're allowed to call somebody a saint. <laughs> we'll have <laughs> to ask the Vatican. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then for the sage, my example is Confucius, as depicted in the Analects. So I have a you know brief narrative for each each kind of exemplar, and then that's followed up with empirical studies that I know of in each category. So there are some interesting empirical studies of Holocaust rescuers. Some of them are actual interviews um, um, and surveys that compare the, 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 you know, the rescuers from non-rescuers and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also um, a kind of um, um, a, the, the group that I'm a consultant for has done some invented some what they call a rescuer game that that people play in a in a laboratory in an fMRI machine so their brains are being scanned while they play the game and it's meant they they want to see like what 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 the differences are between people who rescue in their rescuer game and those who don't and what um, how that's correlated with other behaviors and, um, you know, like if you can find any, find what areas of the brain are activated when they're making the rescuing decision, that kind of stuff. So we have that bit of evidence. It's not, I mean, this is very early on that this kind of brain imaging is done of rescuers, but that's, that's some that I know of. And then there's empirical studies of the people, the volunteers in the large communities, uh, again, they're mostly surveys, interviews, and that sort of thing. Uh, but they're they're quite illuminating. Um, Kevin Reimer has a good book on on uh, that on these people and their character psychological characteristics. And then um, for the sages, um, I just refer to some of the recent work on wisdom. Wisdom studies is becoming really big. You know, for you know, ages nobody did anything on wisdom, and now there are quite a few studies on wisdom and wise persons. And um, so I refer to some of that work too. Yeah, and I take it that one of the and one of the things that you say uh, a couple of times throughout the book um, is that uh, this sort of uh, empirical side of the theory is. Um, yeah, has the 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 advantage maybe of um, being revisable in light of the you know as new empirics come in mm-hmm. you know you can you can update you can update the theory and learn you know learn more about what uh, what our admiration is being attracted to uh, in in light of new scientific and psychological studies right I think that's right and um, I guess I have to say I still think in spite of all the fascinating empirical studies that are going on, I still think that narratives tell us more right. 
um, narratives, films, uh, you know, that it's a medium that really can penetrate the human mind. If, if, if done well, it can really penetrate the human mind very well and reveal, um, you know, the motivational structure of a person that would, would, would help us to understand, to grasp what it is about them that attracts our admiration. Right. Excellent. So let's lead up on that then. Uh, and you had mentioned um, uh, a, a bit earlier uh, the tight connection that exemplarism as a moral theory um, is able to forge between two things that look like they ought to g- go very closely together. But um, a, a, a lot of other moral theories, in fact, it seems to be have a hard time putting together uh, the, 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 the view they offer of moral assessment and what they want to say or what they need to say about moral education and moral development. But it mm-hmm. looks like these things are, 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 are from the very get-go in exemplarism uh, uh, very tightly uh, tethered. Um, can you tell us a little bit about emulation? Yes. Thanks for asking about that. Um, uh, I think that one of the advantages of the approach I have is that it naturally fits with the way people, with the way moral learning ordinarily happens. I mean, we, we learn almost everything through imitation. And, uh, and and I think of emulation as a form of imitation in which we're imitating something that we want to be like. Um, so emulation is actually already, you might say, a, a natural way in which human beings learn. And by having a theoretical structure based on people we want to emulate – I think I can tie together the theoretical map I've described with the with moral education, with something that would um, um, stimulate us to want us to be moral, not just to understand morality, but to want want to be a better person. So I think I think that emulation is, um, you know, not only the natural way people learn, but it fits very well with a theory, a moral theory based on admiration. Right. So emulation then just to, to, to get a little more detail. And so emulation uh, on your view involves a kind of modeling of the, mm-hmm. right. That's how, that's how it's distinguished from just copying or imitation where you, right. you, you don't have to have a model of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, get, just a point of clarification though. Um, I wonder if, um, uh, uh, some some listeners to to how to what you've said so far might be wondering whether um, uh, admiration uh, or a sense of the admirable. Um, wh- wh- can you explain how, in your theory, we can admire the wrong things? Oh yes, um, uh, I'll, I'll say some more about emulation in a minute because I sure. don't think I fully answered your question. But uh, we can't admire the wrong things. I mean, I think that that it's very important to be reflective about admiration. Right. I think that our ultimately our only way to tell that someone is admirable is that we admire them on reflection. But that means on reflection. So there has to be, um, uh, you know, we, we we can revise the the people we find admirable and we can do that. It actually happens often automatically just by finding out more about them. 
But um, I discuss the ways admiration can you know, go wrong in the chapter on admiration. We can admire people who aren't admirable and we can fail to admire people who are admirable. I actually think that um, the, the, the problem of admiring the wrong people is actually less of a threat to um, our moral understanding and moral development than the problem that many people in our culture are suspicious of admiring anybody. Right. Um, there's um, a kind of a, a psychology of wanting to to, you know, sort of enjoying seeing the saint revealed as a hypocrite or something like that. Um, They're wanting to think that there really are not morally superior people, because if there are, then that means there's a demand on me to be better. And, you know, there's a there is some resistance to that. So I think that um, even though we, you know, there's discussed a bit, you know, about how we can uh, revise our um, or and cultivate, I should say, cultivate our emotion of admiration t- to make it more fitting of the admirable. But the threat that I find most worrisome is not that people sometimes admire the wrong people, but this problem I mentioned that some people are are very cynical about admirable people and reluctant to admire anybody. Just to share a thought about that, I think that you're right, that that is a a very serious um, cultural force. Um, It seems oddly accompanied, though, by um, an enhanced need to be admired by others. (laughs) Oh, is that right? It seems to me, at least, that people, people more and more seek the explicit admiration of others while at the same time they adopt a very cynical view uh, about um, those who admire others. (laughs) Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I'm not sure what to say. So they want to be admired themselves, but they're suspicious. Are they suspicious of people other people admire or are they suspicious of people who admire other people? I think a little bit of both. (laughs) They're both suspicious of admiration as such, but yet want to be the object of admiration. Yeah, I don't know what that is unless I mean, there must be. um, Well, I I suggest a kind of a story about how this works psychologically in the book. Uh, But I I wonder I mean, I didn't think of your phenomenon that you just mentioned. And the only um, the only thing that comes to mind as a as a explanation for that is the modern view that people are equal and all equally good. So I don't know if the reluctance to admire is a reluctance to admit anybody is superior to me. But, of course, if I'm admired, then that's good, because then if other people are, are good, then at least I'm equal. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty good myself. So that's possible. I don't know. Right. Well, d- did you want to pick up on emulation? Oh, um, in the emulation chapter, I do talk about, uh, you know, the psychological process of emulating <laughs> and uh, particularly the process 
of a, or the question of whether a virtue can be acquired through emulation. And that's actually more complicated than it seems because the, um, there, there's some interesting uh, work on modeling that you mentioned where, you know, you can, you can model your behavior on, the, on someone else. But, of course, a virtue isn't just behavior. It involves motives and emotions. Right. And so then the question can be, can you acquire an emotion by modeling yourself on a person who has that emotion? And I find that a very interesting question. And I suggest that one way to look at it, to think of how this could happen, is to look at how uh, actors project themselves into the character they're playing. And, um, you know, some actors actually, I mean, I'm not an actor, but I'm told that some actors... um, um, use the use the, the the process of of actually you know sort of internally becoming that person for a while during the course of the project, and uh, where they actually kind of take on the feelings of the character they're playing, right. at least temporarily. And that kind of psychology suggests that. There is something about, I mean, you, in a way you can, in, a, in imagination, actually acquire an emotion of a person you want, whose emotion you want to have. In that case, it's done temporarily and it's not done in full seriousness. I mean, you know, it's, it's done as, an, as, as acting. But that kind of process, I think, is close to the way someone could intentionally acquire an emotion of an exemplar by modeling. Um, and But then the hardest question has to do with, you know, I don't want to talk about it at length, but because it, it covers more than one chapter in my book, mm-hmm. which is the place of reasoning in virtue. Um, so um, if, you know, and, and then this depends upon what exemplars actually do. And I suggest we're going to have to actually do more research on exemplars just find out what the place of reasoning is in their behavior. Now, I suspect that many exemplars, and there's lots of evidence in the interviews of Holocaust rescuers, many of them did not engage in a process of reasoning at all. Right. Um, uh, or, I mean, if the re- if it was, the reasoning was very short. It was, you know, here's somebody who needs to be saved by, from the Nazis, therefore I will do it. You know, <laughs> there's no there's no steps in between. So the question is, what? so what does the virtuous person use reasoning? And if so, and, and if I'm a person who wants to become like the exemplar, then, of course, I'm going to have to learn the reasoning. And then I propose if, you know, we have to do, I don't know the answers to these questions, like what the exemplars do. Right. But just suppose they do use a process of reasoning we're not going to learn the process of reasoning by emulation. So I think you can learn behavior by emulation. You can acquire motives and emotions by emulation. But the reasoning is actually not by emulation. 
Um, we learn that in a different way. We learn, you know, you can learn moral reasoning actually fairly easily in a philosophy class. <laughs> yeah, good thing. It gives us a job. <laughs> and it gives us something to do, right. Uh, but as I said, I rather doubt that exemplars actually do engage in reasoning. And so um, the, pro- the, the purpose of reasoning, I think, actually is not in the process or, or in, in the virtue, in the possession of the virtue. I think the, of the process of reasoning as being so partly social. It's what, you know, what we do, what philosophers do to for, as, a, as, a, as a, a, a service to the community to explain actually to, to explain and justify the judgments that the exemplars make. But the exemplars don't actually use those, that reasoning. Right, so that's the 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 philosophers, or maybe particularly the moral philosophers' role in the in the in the in the community of, of right of, in of, the moral yeah. linguistic community I was describing a minute ago. Yeah. Well, Linda, you've been you've been very generous with your time, and 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 listeners, there's 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 a whole lot of of really fascinating philosophical uh, uh, material. Um, in Linda's book that we that we haven't touched upon, um, so I, I, I encourage everyone to go out and and, and pick up a copy and read it. Um, uh, so uh, since you've been so generous with your time, uh, just as a final question, um, uh, what's the next project for you, Linda? Well, um, there are a couple of projects. There probably are going to be some follow up projects, uh, interdisciplinary projects on exemplars which I can't describe yet because I'm not even sure exactly how they're going to be, um, you know, how they're going to be, be constituted. Uh, but I also am w- working on a, a project for the Suchow lectures, which I'll be giving uh, in a year. And um, that project will be a book called The Two Greatest Ideas. <laughs> the now, two greatest ideas. What the two greatest ideas are? <laughs> I will tell you. I will tell you. So my idea is that there are two ideas so important that they basically undergird all of the intellectual discoveries of human civilization. The first idea, and they're also very simple, and they're they're so simple that they're not noticed. Right. And the first idea is the idea that the human mind can grasp the universe. And the second idea is the idea that the human mind can grasp itself. Ah. And what I do is to give kind of a story of the history of ideas as a story of the interplay between these two ideas. I mean, starting out with the first great idea, you know, dominated through most of human history, Mm -hmm. at least in the West. And, then sometime in the early modern period, the second great idea became dominant. And I think that the, and I don't want to say there's a battle for dominance, but there's a tension between the two great ideas that has not been resolved. Sure. And then I will go through a series of philosophical questions, philosophical issues where the clash of the two great ideas really leads to confusion about the idea or about the problem and then do my best to see what we can say about that. Well, that, 
<laughs> that sounds uh, fascinating and uh, refreshingly am, uh, ambitious. <laughs> um, you know, in a, in a time where philosophy, I think, um, uh, uh, especially in certain fields, um, tries to uh, make a virtue of um, of, of a kind of um, uh, lowering the sights for what philosophy can do. Uh, it's refreshing to see, uh, uh, to, to hear about this project that is uh, so grand. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And I mean, and I, I just want to say, I don't think there's anything wrong with lowering the sights for certain purposes. And, you know, I think, right. you know, I've done that myself and that's fine. It's just that uh, I guess I'm changing now. Maybe I'm just getting old. <laughs> <laughs> well, Linda, thank you so much uh, for your time today and for talking to us uh, about well, thank this Thank you book. very much, Bob. I appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the discussion uh, of Linda Zagzabski's book, Exemplarist Moral Theory. Uh, again, uh, Linda's book is published by Oxford University Press. Bye for now. <laughs>